Can you think of a moment in your life when you see something and it is so awe-inspiring that it takes your breath away and you are left speechless and you are left in wonderment? As I ask myself that question, I believe there are three moments in my life when I saw something so beautiful and so awe-inspiring that it literally took my breath away and I was left speechless. The first of these moments was when I saw the brilliance of the northern lights in far north Alaska. Just a panorama of colors, beautiful what God created. The second of these moments was when I saw the majestic mountains of the Alps for the first time in my life. The rugged beauty, snow-capped mountains, green valleys, beautiful. The third moment was when I saw my wife walking down the aisle on our wedding day. And it is this last one that she made sure that I put in this sermon. (laughs) But there is one such a moment in the Bible when someone saw something and it was so awe-inspiring, it was so, so amazing, that he tried his best to use human words to describe something that was simply indescribable. It is the prophet Ezekiel. And here in his book, the Lord reveals to him a glimpse of his glory. So in awe, in wonderment of the glory of God, that it marks his life and ministry for the rest of his life throughout this book. We'd like to begin our series in the book of Ezekiel by giving you a glimpse of God's glory as described by Ezekiel as he saw it in a vision. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 1, as we exposit verses 1 to 28. Ezekiel, chapter 1, a prophetic book in the Old Testament, right after the book of Lamentations and before the book of Daniel. Ezekiel, chapter 1, verse 1 to 3, provides a bit of a background. Look with me as I read. Now it came to pass in the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river Kabar, that the heavens were open and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, which was in the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's captivity, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Kabar. And the hand of the Lord was upon him there. Let me set the background for you for this book. It is July 31 of 593 B.C. The prophet Ezekiel is 30 years old. And he has been taken as an exile to the land of Babylon. Ezekiel was part of a group that was taken into captivity under the kingship of King Jehoiachin of Judah. There was another group that went before them 14 years before, in 607 B.C. In that first exile, uh, it was Daniel and his three friends who were part of it. Ezekiel is part of this second group that were exiled to Babylon. And there they settled in an area off of the river Euphrates, known as as the Khyber River, a tributary of the Euphrates. They are now in captivity in a foreign land, 
hundreds of kilometers away from Judah. There would be another final deportation in 586 B.C., which would signal the end of the Judean Empire. After 586 B.C., the prophet Jeremiah tells us that they would be in captivity for 70 years. So the prophet Ezekiel would not see home for another 78 years if he lived that long. And since he was already 30 years old, he would have to be 108 years old for him to be able to see his homeland again. We know from Scripture and in historical references and context that he would not live that long. And so he would never see his land again. Five years into captivity with this second group of exiles, under foreign subjugation, hundreds of kilometers away from their homeland, I'm sure they would have begun to feel very depressed. One would begin to lose focus. One would begin to lose hope. It's only natural. Now, if you're going to encourage a people like that, how would you encourage them? If they had notes or email or even a phone back then, how would you encourage them? Write them an email or send them a text? Chin up, only 78 more years. A lot of them already knew how old they were. They realized they would never live that long. Would you send them a text or give them a phone call and tell them, hey, this year is our one-year anniversary, 79 more years, 78 more years? Of course not. That's not a way to encourage a people who know they're in there for the long haul. How do you encourage someone who is deeply discouraged? How do you encourage a group of people who find no hope in where they are? You need a show. You need an expression of something grand and majestic to show that that which you put your hope in is something that can still provide hope for you. And that's why if you notice around the world, in countries that are depressed, especially in communist countries from a generation back, they often put on these huge May Day parades. Just think of North Korea, a very depressed country with almost no hope, and yet every May the 1st on May Day, they would show strength, majesty, with hundreds of thousands of participants as they paraded through their main roads, their armies and their weaponry, to give the people a sense of majesty and awe to encourage them. But of course, the shell is only that in the inside it was nothing. And so Ezekiel and his fellow exiles needed something big to encourage them, but not just simply the shell of a good show. They needed to know that the God in which they believed in was a God that was truly something amazing. And so God will indeed reveal Himself in a very big way. He will do something big for these exiles and for the prophet Ezekiel. He will give him a glimpse of his glory. As he's done before throughout the scriptures when people needed an encouragement. As he showed forth himself to people like Abraham and to Moses. Look at verse 4 of Ezekiel chapter 1 where he gets his first glimpse. Then I look and behold a whirlwind was coming out of the north a great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself. 
and brightness was all around it, and radiating out of its mist like the color of amber out of the midst of the fire. Ezekiel is describing a vision given to him by God, an actual vision. And there he sees a cloud coming from the north. It is not a regular cloud. It is not a cloud filled with lightning because in this cloud it has fire inside, a raging fire. That's definitely not normal. And it was very bright, the color of amber. Here was a man, you can tell, is struggling to use all of his vocabulary to describe something that is really indescribable. God and His glory are coming. Now in verses 5 to 28 are some of the most difficult verses in all of the Scripture because we're trying to imagine what it is that Ezekiel is describing. Some of you can go to the internet and Google on images Ezekiel's vision. But that is only an artist's interpretation of what Ezekiel's vision would have looked like. God gave us words to describe what Ezekiel saw. I'm not telling you to use your imagination, but in many ways, as Ezekiel describes the glory of God and the throne of God, he wants to leave a little bit to our imagination so that we can see that God is indeed indescribable. Now to help you visualize this to a certain extent, I want you to think of three parts to this throne chariot. The throne of God will reveal itself. You can either envision it as being pulled or something that is upholding this throne chariot that is coming out of the clouds. And there are three parts to it. Verse 5 and 6. Also from within it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. Each one had four faces. And each one had four wings. The first thing that Ezekiel sees are four living creatures. Chapter 10 will identify them as cherubim angels. Now cherubim angels are a special type of angels closely associated with the guarding of the heavenly throne closely associated with guarding the glory of God. It is these angels that have the very special privilege of being closest to God. We will see them again described in Revelation chapter 4. In fact, so closely are they related to the glory of God that it is cherubims that are carved into the Ark of the Covenant. And if you're familiar with the Ark of the Covenant, hovering over the mercy seat, where God has enthroned Himself on top of the Ark of the Covenant, He does so in between two cherubims whose wings touch one another. And so these angels are guarding the glory of God, God Himself. They look like men, but they are not. Each of them have four faces and four wings. Look with me at verse 7 to 9. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the soles of calves' feet. They sparkled like the color of burnished bronze. The hands of a man were under their wings on their four sides, and each of the four had faces and wings. Their wings touched one another. The creatures did not turn when they went, but each one went straight forward. 
The Bible tells us these cherubim angels had four wings. Two of the wings were to cover their body, and two of the wings were outstretched, touching the other two wings of each of the angels. So what you have is a square, in a sense. A square that is one unit, works as a team. And the Bible tells us in verse 9, they do not turn, they went straight forward. They were focused. They had one mission. Their directive came from God Almighty. Verse 10, As for the likeness of their faces, each had the face of a man. Each of the four had the face of a lion on the right side. Each of the four had the face of an ox on the left side. And each of the four had the face of an eagle. When I read that description of these cherubim angels, you know what my initial reaction is? What ugly angels. Four different types of faces. Now, no one knows for sure why they have these different looks. They probably represent something. The ox, the lion, the eagle, the man. Some feel they represent the characteristics of these angels. The intelligence as represented by man. Their power as represented by the lion. Their servitude of the Almighty as represented by the ox. Or their swiftness as represented by the eagles. But I believe it's better to see these four faces as representing the highest form of God's created beings as angels. Because as represented in these four are the highest of beings. Man being the best of God's creation set to rule over the world. The lion, the king of the wild beasts of the land animals. The eagle, the king of the birds. The ox, the strongest of the domesticated animals. So these angels are the highest form of angelic beings, and they guard the throne room of God. Verse 11 and 12. Thus were their faces, their wings stretched upward, two wings of each other touched one another, and two covered their bodies. We talked about that already. Two of the wings touched the other two wings of the other three angels, and so they formed a square, a foundation perhaps, to hold up this platform where the throne of God is. The Bible tells us two of the wings cover their body because they serve God in humility, especially in the presence of His holiness. Verse 12, And each one went straight forward. There it is again. They went wherever the Spirit wanted them to go. Would you underline that phrase? They went wherever the Spirit wanted to go. And they did not turn when they went. Verse 13 and 14. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches going back and forth among the living creatures. The fire was bright, and out of the fire went lightning, and the living creatures ran back and forth in appearance like the flash of lightning. They moved very fast. They served the Lord in brilliance. They were always on a mission. They had something to do. But I want to direct you back at verse 12, where again, Ezekiel notes something, again, that he wants to emphasize. They are described as going together as a unit, where the Spirit of God directed them. That's where they went, ready to do what needed to be done, not turning to the left or to the right, always going forward. And so, in this picture of God enthroned on high and His glory... 
we see that the angels most closely associated with the glory of God are on a mission. I believe we can extrapolate a, a, a principle here for how we are to live. Number one, if you're taking notes. A glimpse of God's glory should remind us that we are on a mission. A glimpse of God's glory should remind us that we are on a mission. Those who get a glimpse of God's glory in their life through the way God interacts with them and has revealed Himself to them should be like these four cherubim who stand guard every day since eternity past to the present to do His bidding and they are on a mission. Can you say that when you get a glimpse of the glory of God in your life through how He acts and interacts with you, that your response is to be on fervent mission for Him. What's our mission? The Bible is very clear. Our mission as followers of the living God is to evangelize and disciple. The question is, are we doing it? When you eat at an amazing restaurant, when you taste amazing food, I bet you soon after, your mission as you post on social media is to get as many friends as you have to try this amazing food or this amazing restaurant. I know that to be true. Or when you vacation in a beautiful place or you see something beautiful, it is your mission at that moment soon after to get as many of your friends to also visit the place and to have that amazing experience as you did. But when you get a glimpse of the glory of God in your life, is it your life's mission that you want others to also get a glimpse of God's glory in their life as well. It is a good reminder for us that as Ezekiel describes these cherubim angels, that they are described as being directed by the Spirit of God on a mission, as we are to be as well. This display of God enthroned and His glory to begin Ezekiel's mission in this book is important because as we're going to find out in the subsequent weeks that God is going to ask Ezekiel to do some very strange things. Things you will not have ever come across if you've studied the Scriptures or haven't studied the Scriptures. One of them, we'll discuss that in chapter 4, is when he asks Ezekiel to lay down on his left side for 390 days. And then after laying on his left side for 390 days, to lean over to the right and lay down for 40 days. I want you to think about that. Why in the world would God ask him to do that? We'll talk about that when we get there. Would you be able, on a mission for God, if he calls you to lay on your left side for 390 days, could you do it? You may say, well, that sounds like a lot of fun. I need a lot of rest. In the first two days, you lay on your left side. This feels great. I get the rest that I need. But let me tell you, after a week, it gets boring. 390 days, more than a year, he must lay on his left side. And then on his right side for 40 days. What a mission. And yet, because he got a glimpse of God's glory... Motivating to do what God has called him to do, we're going to find out that when God calls him and challenges him to do these certain things, there is not much of a pushback. He does it. Likewise, in your life, 
when God has revealed His glory through your success, through your achievement, through the miracles of your life, are you focused on Him to do the mission He has called you to do? And it is no secret, it is not to lay on one side for more than a year, it is to disciple and to evangelize. It is so that others can get a glimpse of the glory of God as well. The second aspect or part of this vision of Ezekiel, of God enthroned on high and His glory, are four wheels. Look with me at verse 15 to 17. Now as I looked at the living creatures, behold, a wheel was on the earth beside each living creature with its four faces. The appearance of the wheels and their workings was like the color of beryl, and all four had the same likeness. The appearance of their working was, as it were, a wheel in the middle of a wheel. When they moved, they went toward any one of four directions. They did not turn aside when they went. The next thing the prophet sees are four wheels accompanying each of these four cherubims. They are interlocking wheels. And the Bible tells us that as these living creatures are on a set path, knowing where they're supposed to go, likewise these wheels. They are right beside these angels, whether to the side or these angels are standing on these wheels, these interlocking wheels. Verse 18. As for their rims, they were so high, they were awesome. And their rims were full of eyes all around the four of them. These rims, these wheel rims are very large. But note that they are full of eyes seeing everything. This is a picture of omniscience. A reminder that the throne of God sees everything. What a comfort, but also a rebuke for those who do not think that God sees what they are doing. To know that God, enthroned on high, sees everything. What a comfort for those who think that God does not care about their low life, minuscule as they are, not seeing what you do for Him. God sees all. But what a rebuke for also those who live in the secret chambers of their sinful life, thinking that God will not ever find out what they are doing. Remember, God sees all. Verse 19. When the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up. Verse 20. Wherever the Spirit wanted to go, they went, because there the Spirit went, and the wheels were lifted together with them, for the Spirit of the living creature was in the wheel. The wheel and the angels worked in tandem. It is a picture of unity in the work of God. They did everything together. And who was directing them? The Bible tells us in verse 20, the Spirit of God directed the both of them. There was unity of spirit, for the spirit of the living creature was in the wheels. Verse 21, when those went, these went. When those stood, these stood. And when those were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up together with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheel. There it is again, the repeated theme of working together in unity. We can take away a practical example and application from the description of these heavenly wheels. Number two, if you're taking notes, a glimpse of the glory of God should remind us that we are to be united. A glimpse of God's glory should remind us that we are to be united in what we do. 
You see, when we catch a glimpse of God's glory, we are on one team. Because the singular focus of every believer is to live their lives for the glory of God. And so if you catch a glimpse of God's glory and you live for His glory, then there are no separate agendas in the church. It is His church. It is His work. It is His purpose. It is His plan. It is a picture of unity. It is when men and women take their eyes off of the glory of God. It is when they do not singularly as a community live for the glory of God when there is disunity in the church when there is discord in the church community because now everyone has their own agenda. Everyone is doing what they want to do. They have their own little kingdoms. They have their own little ministries. They have their own little pet projects. But the Bible tells us that if we are to live for the glory of God and we catch a glimpse of that which will motivate us to live for God's glory, then we should all be on the same page. As the wheels and angels worked in tandem, as directed by the Spirit, so also the church of Jesus Christ, working together as various members of the body of Jesus Christ with each of our unique talents, but the Bible tells us, all working together for a singular purpose. It is the World Cup in Russia. And I was reminded recently of what took place in the World Cup of 2006. And it's a story of how the World Cup brought an end to a civil war in a war-torn nation. It was the nation of the Ivory Coast. They had just secured a victory over Sudan, a 3-1 victory, which secured their place in the World Cup, their first ever appearance. In the changing room, it was scenes of jubilation. But they weren't, the players weren't just simply happy about their win. They had more pressing concerns in their mind. Because at the time of their match, their country, the Ivory Coast, was embroiled in a bloody civil war that had displaced more than a million people and killed an estimated 4,000 people. The national team captain invited the media into the changing room. And then when the world's media and their local media was gathered, he handed the microphone to Drogba. If you are into football or soccer, you know his name for sure. He is their star striker. He is a national icon. And Drogba, with the world's media and the local media focused on him, said these words. Men and women of the Ivory Coast, from the north, south, center, and west, we prove today that all Ivarians can coexist and play together with a shared objective to qualify for the World Cup. We promise you that the celebration would unite the people. Today we beg you, please, on our knees, forgive, forgive, forgive. The one country in Africa with so many riches must not descend into war like this. Please lay down all weapons, hold elections, organize elections, all will be better. His speech and the team's qualification for the World Cup with a common shared objective to succeed in the World Cup, help convince the government and the opposing forces to hold a ceasefire and restart peace talks. And in early 2007, the two warring sides signed an official peace agreement causing the president of that country to declare the war was over. 
if you and I have a shared objective, which is to share the glory of God, which is to live for His glory, then the church will succeed united doing this. When our focus is taken away to glorify ourselves, then we cannot be unified in what we do. There is no mission that is more important than living for the glory of God. Every other mission, every other pursuit of your life and my life takes a back seat to what we do for God's glory. And if this is really true in your life and really true in the church, then there will be unity. The glory of God reminds us we are to be united. The third part of this vision of God enthroned on high in His glory is of the expanse and the throne itself. Look at verse 22 and 23. The likeness of the firmament above the heads of the living creatures was like the color of an awesome crystal stretched out over their heads. And under the firmament, their wings spread out straight, one toward another. Each one had two which covered one side, and each one had two which covered the other side of the body. We've already talked about it. These four cherubim angels formed a square. And right above where they seem to be holding up the, the, the platform, Ezekiel looks up and he sees a sky right above where these four angels had interlocking wings. But it wasn't the normal sky. The expanse above the living creatures was different from the regular sky. The Bible tells us it was like the color of awesome crystal. It was sparkling. It was crystal-like. It is the same Hebrew used when God created the firmament of the world. So imagine as if the universe was displayed over the throne of God. It was majestic. Verse 24 When they went, I heard the noise of their wings, like the noise of many waters, like the voice of the Almighty, a tumult, like the noise of an army. And when they stood still, they let down their wings. As this throne chariot moved, the sound itself was awe-inspiring, sounding like intense rushing of water, the marching of an army, even like the thundering voice of God. And then, verse 25, a voice came from above the firmament, that was over their heads. Whenever they stood, they let down their wings. And above the firmament over their heads was like the likeness of a throne, in appearance like a sapphire stone. On the likeness of the throne was a likeness with the appearance of a man high above it. As Ezekiel looks up, he hears a voice. The angels stop immediately. They cover themselves with wings out of respect to the one speaking. When God is speaking, what does the Bible tell us? Let all the world keep silent. That's what happened. The heavenly throne, God's voice comes and they all stop and they cover their bodies out of respect. And Ezekiel could only describe God on the heavenly throne as like that of a man. Verse 27. Also, from the appearance of his waist and upward, I saw, as it were, the color of amber with the appearance of fire all around within it. 
And from the appearance of his waist and downward I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire with brightness all around it. Ezekiel could not get the full picture of God. His glory was so bright that he could only get parts of it, the top and the bottom. And the only way he describes the glimpse of the top or the bottom is a one of brilliance and of fire. You'll notice that it's not as descriptive as that of the cherubim and even that of the accompanying wheels. It's because the glory of God was so bright that he could not look directly at the presence of God because then for sure he would die. Verse 28. Like the appearance of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the brightness all around it. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard a voice of one speaking. There was no, nothing else to describe. The appearance was brightness all around. It is no doubt the living God, the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. He writes in verse 28, he gets a glimpse of God's glory and it is so overpowering that the only response of Ezekiel is that he fell on his face. Who can stand in the presence of God? No one. Number three. A glimpse of the glory of God calls for our humility. A glimpse of God's glory should remind us we are to be humble. Who can stand before the presence of God? No one. In your lifetime, let me ask you this. Have you ever been so moved by something so awesome, so brilliant? You met royalty, you met a movie star, and you feel so unworthy that all you could do was prostrate yourself before that person. Anyone? Any one of you, when you met Jack Ma at La Salle, said, Wow, this man is so smart. I am unworthy to be in his presence, and you fall on your knee or bow the knee. Or you meet a movie star. Or you meet the Queen, Elizabeth. Would any of you fall prostrate? Of course not. I venture to guess that none of you have ever fallen face down to bow the knee because the one who stands before you is so amazing. And yet there is only one person who is so majestic that it will automatically elicit from all the people of the world, of every generation, when they see Him face to face, to bow the knee, not even to bow the knee, to fall prostrate on their face. Because one cannot look unto the holiness and the brilliance of the glory of God. What does Paul write in Philippians chapter 2, verse 10 to 11? You know this well. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. My friends, you are not so big 
that you yourself, as I myself, will not prostrate ourselves before God. One day it will happen. We will see His glory and we will be so overcome by it that we will fall in humility. Everyone, from Jeff Bezos to Bill Gates to Donald Trump, as proud as he is, he will bow before the Lord God to Stalin, to Hitler, to Rizal, to Duterte. Everyone, the Bible tells us, will bend the knee before the heavenly throne. Because the glory of God doesn't just demand our humility, it expects it. Have you seen the glory of God in your life as God has expressed Himself? Do you really see Him for who He is? And therefore, humble yourself in humility, understanding that apart from His enablement, you and I can do nothing. Or do you think that somehow you and I are on the same level with God and His glory is my glory and our glories are about the same? Ezekiel utters not a word. The Bible tells us that when I saw it, I fell on my face I heard a voice of one speaking. As we study this book, there is a reason why God reveals His glory right off the bat in chapter 1. Because He will ask Ezekiel to be a watchman. He will ask Ezekiel to stand in the gap. He will ask Ezekiel to do some strange things to bring a message to the rebellious nation of Israel. And if he did not see the glory of God, for sure he would have complained, because I would have. But as we're going to find out, this prophet, although tasked to do some very difficult things, simply does it. Because he is focused on this vision that would mark him for the rest of his life. A vision so overpowering that he was on a mission for God. That is, he was united with the directive God gave him of what he is to do as a prophet. That he was humble enough to do the strange things that God would ask him to do. Without a second word. Why do teenagers talk back to their parents when they didn't do it as a child? They do so because they're not scared of their parents anymore. They're not fearful. And so they're willing to challenge that which they are not afraid of. Sometimes we do the same with God. We're no longer afraid of Him. He isn't as great and grand as He is. He isn't as majestic in our minds and therefore we feel we have the right to challenge him but a proper understanding of the revelation of God enthroned on high in his glory is a response of simply doing what the omnipotent God asks us to do to humbly come before him and say Lord here's my life do with it as you will I have caught a glimpse of your glory. You know best. You see everything. I'm on a mission. I want to be united in the mission as the Spirit leads because of your glory.
My friends, unless you see the glory of God, unless you accept it, unless every day you ask God to reveal Himself to you, or perhaps look through the lenses of His glory, through nature, through a brilliant sunset or a sunrise, through how He graciously and mercifully gives you what He gives you, unless you can see the glory of God in your life, you and I will not live our lives for Him. We need to see it. We need to catch a glimpse of His glory. And when we do, we will be able to do amazing things for Him. We will no longer question what we believe is outrageous things God is asking us to do. We will do it because He knows best. This is what our church needs as we enter 50 years of our existence. We need to always focus on the glory of God. We need to always see the cross of Christ, which is a reflection of His glory. We need to live our lives as individuals and as a church to live for His glory and invite others to see His glory with us. Then we will be able to do what God asks us to do without complaint. There we will be united with a singular mission to do the work that God has called us to do. May God and His glory reveal Himself to you every day. And as a response, you and I will live for Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for a glimpse of Your glory in Ezekiel chapter 1. It's still hard for me to fully picture what Ezekiel saw, but it must have been amazing. Because the response was to bow the knee and face flat on the ground in humility. Humble us, Lord. Humble me. The glory of God expects it, demands it. And it is in that humility that we will then go forth and do what you call us to do, to be on mission, united as a church, the body of Christ. May your glory be seen in and around us. May your glory radiate from this church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.